This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest is Katrin Schumann, author of the novel The Forgotten Hours and five books of nonfiction. Schumann teaches writing at Grub Street in Boston and is the program coordinator of the Key West Literary Seminar and Workshop. Her novel, The Forgotten Hours, tells the story of the Gregory family, told from the point of view of Katie, who in the present day is in her 20s, reckoning with the fact that when she was 15, her best friend Lulu accused Katie's father, John, of rape. The novel goes back and forth in time from the summer of the alleged rape to current day as Katie grapples with family secrets and the ways in which loyalty may have obscured her judgment. We began the discussion with Katrin Schumann discussing the issues she was thinking about when she began writing The Forgotten Hours. As a young girl, I was very, very loyal always. I seemed to have an extra loyalty chromosome. And if you were my friend, you were my friend to death. Uh, I was just one of those uh, those friends you couldn't shake. Um, and I believed very strongly in the virtue uh, of loyalty. Um, and I perceived myself as somebody who who was a good person uh, who would stand by others when they're in times of trouble. And then the truth was that as I became more mature and uh, emerged into adulthood and realized that life is often very complicated and people aren't always who we think they are, that a kind of blind loyalty can be devastating and can be very destructive And loyalty can also frequently be misplaced. And so you put your passion behind somebody and you defend somebody, uh, and that might not really be in anybody's best interests. And I I kind of learned this the hard way. There was a time in my life when, in an extraordinary, extraordinarily strange twist of of circumstances, I actually had two experiences uh, where I was kind of in the front row seat Um, I had two very, very close friends who both became wrapped up in these devastating legal proceedings around uh, consent and sexual assault charges, and they were on totally opposite ends of the spectrum. And I felt deeply involved in both of their cases, and I felt kind of empathetic, and I felt torn and confused, and I didn't know what was really going on. I knew half stories and half truths, and I chose to believe some things and not believe others. And going through that experience was really upsetting and disturbing for me, um, partially because it required me to redefine for myself my thoughts on loyalty. Uh, And secondly, because it required me to really look inside myself and think about how I draw conclusions about people and whether maybe my gut instincts aren't right. And, uh, you know, how had I gone so wrong? And how was it that somebody who who I believe is perceptive and, and thoughtful could make mistakes about other important people in her life? And so that's essentially the journey that I was exploring. Uh, You know, in many ways, I think I'm a stand-in for Katie. The story that I have created, that I've written here, 
has taken off completely on its own trajectory. And I've included all sorts of uh, subplots that, that look at other themes and interests that I have. But at its very core, I do think uh, it's an exploration of my own struggle with figuring out what it really means to be loyal. Loyalty usually comes from initial experiences of love and commitment that come from a genuine place. And so I'm wondering on your journey to explore this, what you think of it now after having written this book and experienced your own life experiences? I think that if you are a person who is sort of by nature loyal, you know, you can't just erase that from your personality. And I don't think that would be a wise move anyway. I think I've just become less naive and more cautious. And I've realized that I can't know everything, that that we only see things through the very narrow lens of our own perspectives. And we only know half-truths and we're only scratching at the surface ever. So I feel that it is a mistake to assume that you know things about people. Um, and I think so many of us do that. We jump to conclusions, uh, whether it's we hear you know, a little snippet on the news or we read a, an article or we meet somebody and we form a, a quick opinion about them. I think that can be very dangerous. And so while I think at heart, I remain somebody who believes in friendship and trust and love and loyalty, I'm also now a little bit more cautious and careful. And I do understand that people can be more than one thing at a time. Uh, and I think in a way that was the core lesson that I really took away, that that uh, you can be both somebody who has wonderful, generous, genuine qualities, and you can also be somebody who causes pain and is selfish and isn't thinking about other people. Uh, and that's a difficult idea to hold in your head at the same time. And yet it happens again and again in real life. Well, I think also we're in this Me Too movement. The notion in your book is Katie, I wouldn't say that she necessarily didn't believe Lulu. I don't think she really, I think she insulated herself against it all. And of course, she was very loyal to her father. And I think as a woman, your first inclination is to always believe a victim, but then mm -hmm. when the potential perpetrator is someone that you're close to, it changes the game. It really does. It raises the stakes in a way that makes it really tricky, a, a, a true dilemma. And, and that's the position I wanted to put Katie in, where she's torn between these two impulses, and she feels loyalty to both of these people. You know, she loves Lulu, the, the way we love our best friends when we're children, you know, with this intensity. And, uh, they, you know, they have a relationship that's not that unlike a romantic relationship, except that there's no sex. And they have this bond between best friends and a code of behavior. But equally, her father has always been good to her. She has countless memories of his generosity and his patience with her. And so really, I wanted to look at what happens when it is too hard for us to look squarely in the face of the difficult things that we're uh, encountering. And in Katie's case, she, in order to protect herself, 
she sort of has to turn away from Lulu. And she does the same thing with her mother, too, in the end. It, it's a kind of protective mechanism. She can't hold all these truths in her at the same time. And so she has to make choices. And in her case, she makes the choice to stick behind her father and to put her energy into believing in her father's innocence. And the big turning point for her then is once she's matured and she's no longer 15, 16, 17, you know, a young teenager, once she's matured into a young adult and she's living on her own in New York City and she's in love maybe for the first time with somebody who seems like he might be a good, healthy partner for her, she really has to face up to what has happened and look things squarely in the face for the first time. And that is, of course, her big challenge in this book. Can you talk a little bit about the friendship between Katie and Lulu? Katie spends her summers at a a, a, a lakeside, in a lakeside community, in a cabin that, that was owned by her grandfather, who's English. And she meets this little girl when she's about five at a Walmart. And right away, she's attracted to this girl because she appears to be confident and brash and beautiful and uh, everything that Katie thinks she's not. Even as a little girl, she is uh, aware of herself as somebody who is uh, quiet and she thinks of herself as not all that interesting. And this often happens in our early friendships. We gravitate towards somebody who in a way is is, is our polar opposite and from whom we feel we can learn something and we can grow into a more vivacious or courageous person. So their friendship starts um, in that way. And we we don't know from Lulu's perspective what Lulu gets out of this friendship, but we very much know that Katie relies a lot on Lulu and respects her and that they're partners in crime in the summers when they they uh, careen around this, this idyllic lakeside community having fun. Year after year, they spend the summers together there. Then of course, friendships like this develop as we become teenagers and we develop crushes on people and we start separating a little bit from that that intense female bond and looking outward toward other people, such as boys. And often these these, uh, very tight relationships can become competitive in a way that sometimes is uh, confusing and sometimes even pretty destructive. And so I wanted to look a little bit at that progression too, how these very tight friends uh, could be learning from one another and and growing uh, in each other's company, but could also in a way be holding each other back. Uh, and that's kind of the trajectory of, of their story. And that summer, the last summer that they spend together when they're 15, and of course things go terribly wrong on that final night of the summer, They're seeing everything that happens that night through the perspective of their rivalry with each other for this boy, Jack, that they have a crush on. And I became interested in that aspect of their relationship, too. One of the things I think your book points to, because you go back and forth with time with Katie in her 20s, with a boyfriend and her dad just poised to get out of prison and then getting out of prison and their childhood friendship it stresses the idea of when of time and and having a retrospective 
point of view on your life that you can never have in the present. And Katie was a character who I got from the book, couldn't look at the things that were painful. I mean, not only was she not looking at them, but she, her family sort of supported her not looking at them. They pushed her out of knowing the truth. So it brings up so many questions about what you think your life is and what your life really, when you look at it later back in time, what it's become. So she's kind of having a personal reckoning in the present moment. That's right. Yes. So as she matures and separates from her family and becomes the person she wants to be or tries to become the person she wants to be, she comes to realize that this culture of silence in which she grew up really has held her back and has been negative to her. Uh, and, And she realizes that through her relationship, her mature adult relationship with her boyfriend, Zev, because she hasn't told him anything about what happened in the past. And that's sort of been her modus operandi is going along, just, you know, pull yourself up by the bootstraps, keep going, remake yourself and forge ahead and don't dwell on the things that have been difficult or painful. Well, when she starts to make herself vulnerable uh, to Zev, because they have a pretty healthy relationship that is going well, she realizes that she wants to tell him about her past and she really just doesn't even know how. She doesn't have the vocabulary for it and she hasn't been allowed to look at it and she hasn't allowed herself to look at the past in that way. And so I wanted to play with the idea of how the past looks to you when you recall it in memories, in sort of snippets of memories, and how you are looking through such a very narrow lens at something that happened that you cannot hope to capture the truth of what actually happened. It's it's all your feelings about what happened at that um, in any particular moment. And I read a lot about this too. I read a wonderful book um, by Bessel van der Kolk um, where he talks about people who suffer from trauma and PTSD and how their minds don't allow them to change the narrative that they have written about the past. He also talks about how our our minds, um, our, our brains are not archives of memory, but our memories are always adjusting and being rewritten depending on the new contexts that we're in when we're recalling them. So I kind of wanted to play with all those different ideas and see whether on this journey Uh, that Katie is on, whether she can come to some greater sense of truth by looking at her memories. In the present moment, we meet John, the father, and we, we also see him in the past. And in the past, he's this jovial kind of life of the party, drinking with the mother, but having fun with the summer folks at the lake. And then we meet him just coming out of prison. So in the early scenes, when the girls are young, and then also that summer when they're teenagers, as you say, we get this impression of him as being very uh, carefree and generous and kind of the life of the party. Of course, we're seeing this through Katie's eyes, too. So we don't know if he's 
really like that or what he's really like behind the scenes, but that's certainly how he's presented to us. Then as he gets out of prison, he's a man who has been changed. But has he been changed? How much has he been changed? Who is he really like? Katie sees him differently now because she's also matured and because he comes out of prison a diminished man who has to remake his life. And so certain things that were maybe hidden before come to the foreground that she begins to notice that she didn't notice as a child, just as one wouldn't notice things as a child about our own parents um, that we might only come to realize are true once we're more mature. So I think of I think of John as a man who is a complicated character who I believe has had uh, a difficult past, which encouraged him to grow up and 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 assume this persona that gives him the feeling of uh, of control in social circumstances, but that really, in his core, is not that confident man um, that he presents himself as. And the question I guess I'm asking is, you know, what are you capable of doing if you present one way, uh, but really inside you don't feel strong and, and powerful? Uh, are you, what are you maybe capable of doing behind closed doors that other people wouldn't ever guess? I think, too, what's interesting about the book is in the present day, Katie has an icy relationship with her mom, whose name is Charlie. So it appears that Charlie stuck by John through a, a period of time when he was going through the trial and then eventually just couldn't stay. And she left and has remarried and doesn't really have a relationship with Katie or her younger brother, David. But at this time when John gets out of prison, Katie reconnects with her her mother sort of out of necessity. And it's interesting to look at their relationship because one would think that as a young woman, if your friend had accused your father of this, that you would sort of side with the mother. But she always was really siding with the father. She was the one that the father turned to when he came out of prison. She she was the ultimate loyal daughter. And I'm curious about this relationship with the mother. So I feel very empathetic toward Charlie. She's, I think, a character in the book who who really gets the short end of the stick. Um, and I'm I'm very interested in her uh, and what she her, her struggles and how she's been misunderstood. And how I saw their relationship was that, that Charlie's British and she was raised by a, a strong-willed and charismatic uh, father. And we meet him too in this book. Um, his, his nickname is Grumpy. He's the grandfather. And she isn't comfortable talking about difficult things. She holds them inside. And as a consequence, the way she appears to her child, to her daughter, is she appears to be a bit cold-hearted and and not, not very loving and warm in the way that Katie's father is loving and warm. And of course, as a child, Katie doesn't understand why her mother would behave this way. And she internalizes it and she, she explains to herself 
uh, not really consciously, but she comes to believe that she has somehow disappointed her mother, that she's not the daughter that her mother wanted. And she understands that her mother's had trouble having children and that there's some kind of pain in her background that maybe Katie doesn't know anything about, but that's a mystery to Katie and she's not allowed to ask those kinds of questions. So she's emotionally closer to her father than she is to her mother. And given that that's the situation she's in when this whole thing explodes in their faces and she's faced with the choice whether to believe that her father could be a bad person and could possibly not at all be the man that she thought he was, or continue to believe that her mother is flawed and cold, it's much easier for her in that moment to embrace her idea of who her father really is and and demonize her mother. It's much more threatening to her to have to think she was not only wrong about her father, but she was also wrong about her mother. So I see Charlie as this kind of tragic figure. She's totally stuck in the middle and she makes a decision to kind of save herself eventually from this story and to remake her life. Uh, And she meets and marries a man and moves up to Canada and she's punished for it basically Um, punished by her family for it because she's trying to move on and get on with things. Um, But she has her big flaws that she's never found a way to talk about this and to be open about this experience and to share with her family, with her children, the reality of what was happening to her from her perspective. So that's that at its core. That's what I was uh, trying to highlight in the dynamic um, in that relationship. So you um, have taught writing in prisons. Did that give you any insight at all into the type of character you wanted to create for him post-release? Yes, it was really interesting to me, this experience of being in a room with, uh, you know, 10 or 12 men who are sitting quietly and, and, and eagerly participating in a class on fiction writing or essay writing, uh, who are polite and attentive and uh, in some cases interesting and charming. uh, And you don't know what their story is. You don't know who these people really are. You don't know why they're there. uh, And you don't know how they would behave in situations with other people. So uh, it's, it's fascinating to think that these are complicated human beings who who have done something terrible enough to land them in jail, but they're also just human beings. They're interesting and polite, and and it's worthwhile having conversations with them and 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 working with them. So I figured once once somebody like this gets out of jail, how do they rebuild their lives again? Obviously, there's an incredible stigma around having been in jail? How do you get a job? Where do you live? How do you have enough money to keep going? You know, in a way, you have to rely on the people who were in your life before you went in jail, if you're lucky enough, uh, you know, to have somebody who can who can uh, lend you some money or give you a place to crash or somehow help you reintegrate into the world. And that's the position that John finds himself in. He's significantly weakened because he gets out of jail and 
he doesn't have this whole framework that he had built up for himself before he went into jail. He has to reinvent himself. And that's the part of the question that I wanted to ask is, will he do that? Can he do that? And given Katie's particular journey, uh, what role is she going to play in that experience of rehabilitation? Katie's world changes, too, when he gets out as things are heating up with her relationship with Zev. His release instigates sort of the unraveling of her looking for truths that she never looked for at the time. So a lot of this seems to be about secrets and how we hold them and then let them go. Yes, I think that's definitely true. I think all of us have secrets, whether they're huge, devastating secrets, or whether they're just small secrets that are the truth of how we see ourselves. And the a, a huge thread in the story is how do secrets reveal themselves? Uh, do, can, can we ever sweep them under the rug? And do they just go away if we do that? My contention is that, that that's not a healthy way of, of moving forward in life, that that just doesn't work, that those secrets fester and they exist. They just don't go away. Um, and part of that, that discussion or that exploration in my mind is also about this idea of truth. Um, you know, there, there are facts and then there is the truth. And I became very interested in, in the idea that it's possible that there isn't one truth, um, that when things happen and we can see them in in many different ways, that sometimes we can't really get at the absolute truth of the matter. Uh, being secretive about it, however, just doesn't help. Um, in you know, in in my mind, it's much healthier to to fight and talk and cry and wrestle with these questions in an open way um, rather than try to tuck them away. Um, in a closet or under the rug. Is there something that you hope your readers walk away with? Yeah, I think that there are two things that were really on my mind that I hope that readers think about a lot at, when they read this book. And the first is how dangerous this culture of silence is, that ignoring problems doesn't make them go away. Uh, and I think the second thing also is uh, this notion of people being complicated and being multiple things at the same time and recognizing that it can be dangerous to want to put people in silos and categorize people you know he is charming she is is mean uh you know he he is uh intellectual and friendly you know we 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 categorize in a way that we feel very comfortable with and we're very uncomfortable with the reality that people can be uh, multiple things at the same time, both good and bad. Those can exist simultaneously and they don't cancel each other out. Just because somebody has done something bad doesn't mean that they are completely bad person. And just because somebody seems to be good and is generous doesn't mean that there isn't also a dark side to them. Uh, even though that reality, I think, can be very uh, upsetting for some people. It, I do think it is a more realistic way of looking at the world. And I think that we can protect ourselves better from people who may not be 
doing things that are in our own best interest. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? Yes, I'm going to read a passage from a book by Tessa Hadley, who is a British writer. uh, And this book is called The Past. Uh, And one interesting thing is when I was looking for a passage to read, there were five or six passages that I could have read. I do love this book. So I chose one and I will explain to you uh, briefly afterwards why I chose it. On her way home from bird watching, Harriet crossed a tussocky field, a narrow wedge shape between two stretches of woodland, rising steeply to where it was closed in by more woods at the top. After the woods with their equivocal shade, the the strong sunlight was startling when the path opened onto this gap. A red kite ambled in the sky above, small birds scuffled in the undergrowth, too hot to sing, and a pigeon broke out from the trees with a wooden clatter of wing beats. A stream ran down the field, bisecting it, conversing urgently with itself, its cleft bitten disproportionately deep into the stony ground and marked against the field's rough grass by the tangle of brambles that grew luxuriantly all along it, profuse as fur, still showing a few late white flowers, limp like damp tissue, and heavy with berries too sour and green to pick yet, humming with flies. So one thing I love about Tessa Hadley's writing is that, first of all, that incredible specificity of detail and those energetic words that provide the reader with this very kind of multi-textured image of what's happening you know, I, I think that's very, very strong. Um, and then I love the way she looks at, she, she explores the internal and yet also is very rooted in what's happening in the outside world. Uh, I, I find that to be something that I aspire to in my own writing. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft. Yes, I'm going to read from the very opening of the book, which changed significantly uh, because I was struggling to figure out where to open the story, where where to launch into this rather difficult story. So this is the prologue, June 2007. Two girls, almost young women, but not quite, stand side by side on a dock in the shade of an old green boathouse. Their arms and legs prickle with goosebumps. Their skin is winter pale. One has a spray of purpling bruises on her thigh, and the other has forgotten to shave. They're laughing and laughing, their toes curled over the edge of the dock, splintered after months of snow cover. Below them, the lake is chilly, not very inviting. The girls are eager to launch into their summer rituals, but neither has the courage to plunge in first. The taller one, Lulu, is 15 years old, or so she says. Over the past year, since Katie last saw her, She's grown two inches and let her black hair grow out, so it shifts in the wind, alive. There are hints of blue in it. Her body is soft and curvy. She's gained weight since last summer, and it suits her. When she's older, standing in dressing rooms blasted by fluorescent lights, she'll curse her flaring hips, think they're ugly. And yet, even now, men and boys, girls too, find their eyes drawn to her. A man comes toward them, whooping loudly, and dares them to jump into the lake. His laugh bounces over the water, off the pines on the opposite bank, and then back at them. 
He's wearing faded pink and green swimming trunks, musty from being crammed in a drawer. Lulu is almost as tall as he is, and her hair touches his shoulder as he stands next to her, eyeing the spring-fed water. My beautiful girls, he says, though only one of them is his child. Too cold for you? So the reason I chose to read that is I've started this book in so many different places. Uh, originally, I started it in the courtroom scene where Katie is totally discombobulated and they're blazing lights and it's boiling hot because the air conditioner is on the fritz and her father is sentenced and taken away. Uh, and I worked really hard on that scene. I, I felt that it encapsulated the, the kind of tension and, and drama that is part of the book. But ultimately I discarded it because the book really is more of a meditation and an exploration of the uh, psychological aftermath of a crime. It's not really a kind of hard-boiled whodunit. And I felt that that was just not quite representative of the, the tone and the, the style of the book overall. Then I also at one point started the book at in the scene where Katie returns to the cabin after it's been shuttered for almost 10 years and she's picking her way over the dead grass and sort of getting into the cottage again and begins to be assaulted by these various memories of what happened that night. And I found that it was just a bit too complicated. Um, it, it urged me to go into backstory too quickly and didn't ground the reader quite uh, enough at the beginning of the story. So I decided to take the risk with this little scene in which not all that much happens, but which I felt at least thematically interesting introduced some of the important things that I was interested in this book. And then certainly in terms of its tone was going to be more representative of the book as a whole. Where do you write? I have just moved to Key West for the winters and I've set up a uh, new little office, which I've painted navy blue and I built some big bookshelves. Uh, it's a very small room. It has a a nice big window that looks over the sky where I can see the sunrise. And I sit there in silence at a very small desk. Uh, and that is where I uh, work, surrounded by my books. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? Well, I now have a part-time job. I'm the um, program coordinator for the Key West Literary Seminar. So actually, uh, 20 hours a week, I'm, I'm literally away from my writing. Um, and I work in a a great little conch house with two other wonderful people on things that are related to literature and writing, but not related to my own work. Um, so that provides a, a very nice counterbalance. Um, and then I also try to be active. You know, I can tend to be really overly focused when I'm writing. I'm, I'm very single-minded. Uh, so I like to, to get up and get out and do uh, yoga or running or spin or some some intense activity where I move my body. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? This process is really important to me, and I'm so incredibly lucky to have a handful of trusted readers, uh, both readers who are professionals because they're also writers, um, but some who are really just friends 
friends who are very ascertaining readers. And uh, I have about three or four that I will send a very first draft to when I'm still at that super vulnerable stage and don't know whether this is making any sense at all. And then once I've developed the story a bit further and I've got a thicker skin and I can uh, take a little harsher feedback, I have a, a further set of very generous readers who are willing to read it with a more a critical eye and, and steer me in the right direction. How have you dealt with rejection? Well, I only write long form fiction and nonfiction, so I have not had a lot of rejection. But when I have had rejection, it's come after many, many, many years of working on a project. So I hate to say it, but um, rejection at that point, when you've put five or more years into something, is just absolutely devastating. Um, and then what I learn over time, because it's happened to me a few times, is that I, I, I retreat and I, uh, I doubt whether I can do what I've set myself to, to achieve to do. Um, and then slowly but surely, I just find myself back in front of my computer wanting to write something again. So the urge to create and to tell stories comes back regardless of whether my work is going to be published or has been accepted by uh, the gatekeepers. And I feel pretty grateful that I've managed to, uh, to, to survive that, that uh, roller coaster because th there are times when it's really, really tough. Um, but then I always invariably get back to the moment where I'm, I'm back with the words and the ideas and the characters. And that's really where I want to be. And what is your favorite word? Oh, the favorite word was a very difficult one. Um, I tend to like onomatopoeic words, uh, which is, you know, sort of the obvious choice. But uh, a word like suceront, which is a sort of a whispering murmur sound, and actually, which I would never use in my writing, but I love the sound of. Um, but I also love words like pig or mat, you know, words that are very uh, concise and, and short. Um, I think I'm attracted to rhythm in work, and so I, I often gravitate to contrast in writing. Um, so maybe using words that are poetic or onomatopoeic and contrasting them with uh, short, sharper words, uh, I find that to be a lot of fun. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest was Katrin Schumann, author of The Forgotten Hours. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.